episode 18 of the Tactical Breakdown podcast. Today we're talking public order policing, everything from crowd control to riots to tactical responses with Sergeant Darwin Tetro of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown, a podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. All right, all right. Welcome back to another episode of Tactical Breakdown. If you're a new and or returning listener, thank you so much for your love and support. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review. It's going to help us take this thing to the next level. And before we get into the episode, I'm excited to announce that in 2020, we're going to be partnering with some amazing conferences and organizations. First one coming up is the ILEDA Conference. ILEDA is the International Law Enforcement Educators and Trainers Association. Their conference takes place every year. This year, it's in St. Louis, Missouri in March. If you're going to be down at the conference, make sure to swing by, say hi to us, pick up some swag. And if you're interested in doing a live interview with us there, reach out to us at thebreakdown.ca forward slash contact and we'll get it set up. Okay, today's episode is on public order policing. We're talking crowd control, riots, response tactics with Sergeant Darwin Tetro of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Darwin is a 19-year police veteran with the RCMP, currently serves in a leading role for the National Public Orders Program. I know you're going to find this episode as informative and interesting as I did. Just a quick heads up, we had a little bit of an issue with our audio, so it'll sound a little distorted. I apologize for that, but you'll still enjoy this episode, so let's get right into it. Here we go. All right, Darwin, I'm glad we finally got some time to to get on the phone together, my friend. Thank you for joining me. I know you're out in Toronto right now doing some work out there. So we're going to talk about public order programs, especially that with the RCMP today. Obviously, that's your area of expertise. But before we kind of jump into it and start talking, maybe we should give whoever's listening here just kind of a brief explanation of what the public order program actually is, um, what those officers do, and kind of how it relates in both Canada and the U.S. Can you can you lay that out for us? Yeah, thanks very much, Adam, for having me on. It really took us a while to get this uh, all teed up, but here we are, right? So public order is a pretty big topic. It's uh, complex, and the fundamental uh, reason behind public order is in our United States and Canada, in our constitutions, is that everybody in Canada uh, under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, has the right to freedom of expression, the right to free speech, and to gather, and to speak. So uh, those rights are, are uh, enshrined in our Constitution, and uh, same thing with the United States with their various amendments, that they have the right to gather and speak. And no one can infringe on those rights. But there comes a point in time where if you start to do hate speech or um, violate the public peace, or infringe on other people's rights, or it becomes unlawful, or in some cases violent, then the public order team, through whatever means necessary, uh, whether it's going to be just intervening between two people fighting, or whether it's going to be in um, riot control gear, tactical gear, um, with a different level of response, then we're going to do that. But we have to maintain the public peace. 
people should be able to speak their mind, people should be able to disagree, and not get beat up for it, and not get killed for it in some cases. So, at the essence, that's what public order is, is maintaining the public peace through the facilitation of lawful and peaceful protest. When you and I first spoke, you brought up public order, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, you mean riot, right? I'm like, you're talking about, uh, <laughs> you're talking about the riot guys. You're like, yes, yes, that's what I'm talking about. I'm like, okay, we're on the same page now. We're good. So I'm glad you, uh, you laid that out there for everybody. So one of the things that, uh, that we wanted to talk about was the perception to the public about what the public order officers look like on when they get called out. What do you think is the major issue with, with the perception of the way the officers look when they roll out in, in full gear? Well, most people understand that the police have a legal authority under the criminal code and this is across all candidates, uniform across the United States, police are also permitted this, to use force, and as much force as is necessary. The force has to be reasonable, proportionate, and typically individualized. So, um, like, we can't pepper spray a crowd. We can't do that, because um, force has to be applied to the person using uh, the force. You have to apply it to that individual, right? Okay, but the first thing on the use of force continuum in Canada is officer presence. So the, you make a 911 call, there's a fight outside of your house, and the police show up in a uniform car. They get out, they're in uniform. Everyone immediately knows the police are here because of the uniform. It signifies, and it already is a certain level of force. It's the lowest level of force, but officer presence is the first. When it comes to public order, we don't look, especially when it comes to riot control, we don't look like normal police. We don't even look like uh, the emergency response team or ETF or the SWAT units look. We look different than they look. We have big helmets with big shields. We're, we're really big guys because of the percussion armor and padding that we wear. We wear different gloves. We wear different boots. Uh, we might be have guns or no guns on, depending on the type of response that we're doing. We carry big shields and batons. So we look, um, it's designed to look intimidating. Because if we can just show up and stop the riot without having to lay hands on anybody, that's a victory. Right? Yeah. So, um, absolutely, right? Yeah, that um, makes sense to and me. And lots of times um, when we've shown up in what we call our, our level four is full, full percussion armor, full riot gear. We've shown up in level four and the disturbance ends. Like it ends because people don't want to mess with people that look like we look like. Right? Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't put this type of gear on um, on a Tuesday afternoon and go downtown Ottawa. We don't do that. When we show up in this gear, it's already gone bad. That was going to be my follow-up question was, this isn't something that's a preventative measure showing up in level four. It's, that's, it's a response at that point. Studies show that officers showing up at a particular point in time in front of a crowd that's unruly already showing up in this gear can actually aggravate the crowd. So the troop commander, the incident commander has to tread carefully when officers are deployed in full gear. because. It's already gone bad. The psychological studies show that when somebody shows up in full gear, um, because it's difficult to hurt us because of the padding and that kind of thing, they feel that it's okay to throw things at us. 
because they're not going to hurt us. But they would never throw a bottle or a rock at a police officer in normal uniform. So it, it's a very fine line um, before the decision has to be made to send us out. I find it interesting. That's always kind of the big thing that you, you see in the news and, and the video and the recordings that are taken in these types of situations where it's usually one way or the other. It's the crowd being actively aggressive, throwing things, doing things towards the officers and the officers not responding and kind of just standing. Or you see it the other way around where you don't see the initial action by the, the protester or the hostile uh, participant, but the officer then, you see the officer's arresting the suspect and you you lose all the precursor to it so it seems like it kind of polarizes in the media you either get one or the other is, is do you do you see that with what you're doing yeah it's it's very common because um there's a lot of build-up canadians uh americans are good honest hard-working people they don't go wake up one day oh, i'm gonna start a riot today they don't do that there's a whole lot of things that have to be stepped on uh like a staircase before uh, a riot breaks out. Even within the walls of, say, a prison, where there's uh, disturbances on a regular basis, there ha- there's weeks, often months, of buildup before a disturbance or a riot takes place. And even the days leading up to it, and the hours leading up to it, um, when you're in those situations, you can actually physically feel the tension of the community uh, as it comes to a boiling point, like think about a contentious court decision. You have, uh, say, an officer involved shooting, and it goes, starts to go through the court process. And uh, the court process might be two or three years after the event. And you have a court ruling, and the tension will build to that day. We all know it's coming on Thursday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, right? Uh, we all, the weeks leading up to it, as the final arguments are made and the jury goes out, and like it, the tension builds, you can physically feel that. We have, videos of them doing nothing and the police waiting to there to be a point in the sand where we have to where they have to cross before the police take action and then but the video doesn't show the week's attention building up the video doesn't show how much time the police had to sit there and take abuse before they acted and the video only skips right to you know uh the part of the the uh, crowd control officer doing what he has to do to protect himself from making arrests. Like you don't see all of those tens of thousands of hours between these events might occur. So that's sensationalism. Yeah. It's very common to, I mean, in any use of force situation involving police security, anybody really that usually you miss the, the most important part of the video, which is what instigated the altercation in the first place. Yeah. But you touched on something there that I kind of, I would like to actually get into, which is right. what are the stages? I don't know if there's set stages of hostile crowds or riots as they, as they progress from, from non-existent up until like full blown Vancouver 2010. So what uh, do, do you guys have preset stages for that, that you, that you react to and have certain de-escalation tactics applicable to each level or how does that work? Well, there's lots of stages to building up to a, a point of disturbance. And the nice thing is, is that they're fairly well-known, fairly recognizable. And you're right. We have lots of mitigation strategies um, with every police agency in Canada and the United States. So um, let's call them community tension indicators. Okay. So there's a community, a community tension indicator might be, uh, for example, a rise in public complaints against the police. 
So the local police or jurisdiction, whether it's DRCMP or the Winnipeg police or, or Saskatoon or whoever, they start to see a rise in the number of public complaints. And they start to see a more, uh, a, an increase in uh, assaults on police or police having to use force against the public on minor events like a drunken arrest or a domestic assault arrest or something like that, where it's kind of routine and that force has to be used because the tension within the community, particularly a smaller community like a, an Aboriginal community or um, a vulnerable community, they notice that those things happen fairly quickly. And with the RCMP, the way we do business with respect to community policing, we can go out and monitor those tensions. We'll notice these things. And we can deploy people who have a specialty in this area called division liaison teams. And they'll go out and they'll actually uh, do community meetings, talk to community influencers, talk to community leaders and elders, those kinds of things. And they'll diffuse the tension and they'll pull out what is the real root cause of what's happening and try to deal with it. Maybe it's one particular officer in a community who is um, you new or overzealous or something along that line, right? Mm -hmm. So you're right. There is these tension indicators throughout that um, the police can monitor with our own systems and we can exploit a de-escalation tactic within that to avoid a period of disturbance down the line a month or two or a week or whatever. So those, the two that you mentioned are like a rise in, in public complaints, uh, an increase in use of force uh, during arrests yep. and, and, uh, and call outs. Those would be weeks and months leading up when, when it gets down to like the day of what are some, what are some telltale signs that officers would look for that would be like, okay, something, something's going down today. Okay, spawn, like I'll give you an example of a spontaneous disorder. A spontaneous disorder is usually really short-lived, like only a few hours, and it usually surrounds a particular event like a um, sporting event or like St. Paddy's Day or something like along that line. It's usually um, the perfect storm of things come together. Good weather, uh, lots of alcohol, lots of young people, um, a gathering or a, um, like a party or a game of some kind, right? A concert. That's where uh, spontaneous things usually happen, where there's no tension indicators leading up to it. You might have a few hours of tension leading up to it. Like um, we had a case debrief on the course that I'm on, and it was about uh, St. Paddy's Day in London, Ontario in 2012. And like the calls for service started at you know, sunrise, eight o'clock or seven o'clock in the morning or whatever with kegger parties. And it kind of continued all day, but they noticed a really low number of, in the afternoon where call volume is usually high, they noticed a low number of calls, like way low. Usually at 60, the calls were at four. So what they think happened was that there was a high number of calls in the morning. Everybody got drunk, fell asleep, sobered up, started drinking and partying again. And then it went off the rails at about seven or eight or nine o'clock at night, I think it was. And they had five or six hours of disturbance where a car was burned and furniture was burned and someone was hurt and like all these different things happened. So there's a difference between, you know, uh, an event or spontaneous disorder and a thing that's planned that is built up to for months. Does that kind of answer your question? It does. Yeah. And so for, for the ones that lead up, like say like you're, you gave the example of a, a court case, um, something yeah. 
that that would be polarizing to the public. Yeah. Uh, when when we know those verdicts are going to be handed down, what is the what is the response from these these teams? Like when do they get rolled out? When when does that call come in that it's like okay, we got to we got to suit up and and get ready for this because we know something's happening. Oh, early as early as possible they might uh, start deploying um at the major points of a court case. <clears throat> so an example would be um, in a small community, a police officer uh, shoots somebody and uh, it's going through the investigative process. And um, six or seven months later, they're going to release the findings of the investigation, whether the member is going to get charged criminally or whether the members, um, it's going to be deemed to be a justifiable shoot. And the member is going to carry on with his life and no charges are going to be laid. So <clears throat> within that six months, there's a whole bunch of major tension points, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is the officer still in the community? Is he off duty with pay? Is he those kind of things? So we would deploy our division liaison teams or other police liaison team as early as possible to defuse the tension of that community. Because once the incident is over, like once the once the disturbance is over, or once the um, it's it's over with respect to the shooting investigation, that community still is there. The police still have to police that community. We have to immediately start to rebuild our relationship with those communities because we have to live there too. So we deploy these um, division and police liaison teams early and often within the process, and we know things are going to happen like. There's going to be, uh, I don't know, something um, going to happen within the investigation. In the days or weeks leading up to it, we're going to deploy. But there's going to be a, a, a constant flow of communication between the liaison officers and whoever as the influencer or the leaders within those communities, on the phone, on text, those kind of things, right? So mm-hmm. those are specially trained officers that we train very well, and it is a very, very effective tool. When we're talking about kind of spooling up and getting ready for these deployments. There are, from my understanding, the RCMP, for example, you don't have a team that's on standby that that's what that team does. So these officers that do the public order there, that's kind of a secondary duty to, to their, to their regular duty. Is that correct? Correct. Everybody's got the regular job and off the side of their desk, they do public order duty. Gotcha. So how does that happen then? If, uh, if we're talking to, to people that are either coming into policing or new officers and they're like, what, it, like, what exactly is this? Cause we haven't like maybe their community, they've never had to do that. What are some, what are some things that you would tell them? Like, this is what to expect, um, when these get spooled up and, and when we have to go out and to these types of calls. You know, I've been called out a number of times, uh, for public order related issues. Um, lots of the, most of the deployment are what I'm going to call soft hat. So, Everyone is fairly familiar with the RCMP uniform. The soft hat uniform is basically the same thing, except it's a blue shirt and a blue pair of pants with no yellow stripe and usually a baseball hat. Most of the deployments are crowd management, not crowd control related. So we might have to physically get between a protest, counter-protest group, um, left wing, right wing, think about that. We have to physically stand between them. And that's the kind of response, that's most of the response we get, that it has to go out and we have to physically intervene between two groups of people who want to fight each other or hurt each other or whatever. We'll physically intervene. That's what most of the call-outs are. Um, if you get a call-out with, um, 
it's respecting uh, level four collard or full, uh, full tack here. Um, typically, it's a lot of sitting around in the basement of a gym or a uh, bus and having a box lunch because, like I said earlier, <laughs> it's true. It's true, Ed. You laugh, but it's true. We sit in a bus for 18 hours and that. You uh, hurry up and wait, may, right? Yeah, you, you may never be called because if you put the team in too early, it aggravates the crowd. And if you put the team in too late, um, we may not be as effective as we could be. So you have to find the right time within an event to deploy a, ta- a team in full tack here. And it's not an easy choice to make, which is the course that I'm on this week with the Toronto Police Service and the Interprovincial Police is the commander course. And we spend we spend some time talking about when the right time to do it is. Are there any, are there any golden nuggets that you've picked up so far uh, on that course? Oh, there's lots. Uh, today we had a, uh, we always talk about community attention indicators, which is always a good topic of conversation. Um, yeah, you know what? Today, um, like we think about the police, uh, as an outsider, you look at the police and you think, okay, well, that, that cop knows a great deal about firearms. Right, so they ask us about firearms legislation, mm-hmm. and lots of times I go, ah, I don't know. Like I, I'd have to look that up and research it, and we have resources available to do that for us quickly when we need it. But, and the same thing here. So there's a, a retired chief superintendent who give a, a speech today on ethics and leadership, and he talked a little bit about the law. And the thing that I picked up from him today was that public order issues and public order events are unfamiliar and uncomfortable to most police officers, whether it's the constable or the commissioner, except for our commissioner. As a matter of fact, she used to be a public order commander, but um, most public order events are unfamiliar and uncomfortable to most police. You wouldn't think that, but it takes a lot of training to be comfortable in a big crowd as a police officer. Mm -hmm. So that's the big nugget that, uh, uh, that I picked out of today. That's awesome. I like it. Yeah. You talked a little bit about the stages, like the levels of deployment. So you, you spoke there to like a level one type deployment where you're simply, like you said, soft hat, just blues walking in. Level four being the full getup, full tack helmet, suit, everything. Is there, are there levels in between? What's the, what's the, if I were to go one through four, how does, how does that progression look? So level one uniform is just the regular patrol uniform you see with the RCMP. Gray shirt, body armor, uh, blue pants with a yellow stripe, forged cap. That's our level one uh, service uniform. Like It's just the working uniform of the day, right? Mm-hmm. And the level two equipment is uh, a blue shirt, body armor, um, gun belt, and blue pants, and maybe a baseball hat or two, depending on the weather. And that is the more tactical uniform that we would deploy in for public order or crowd control issues with that level of uniform. So it's not quite the level one uniform. It's not quite the level three uniform. It's something nice in between. And for um, public order officers, that's our everyday uniform. Uh, Level three is basically a set of overalls, but with lower torso, lower uh, limb protection only, but with a gun belt and body armor. So you might have a set of heavy boots on, knee pads and thigh pads. Uh, on for uh, working within a crowd to make arrests and that kind of thing. And then level four is full percussion armor from head to foot. With that tactical gear, now, have there been many changes with that in the last 
10, 15 years or has it kind of stayed status quo for, for a while? It stayed status quo for um, about the last 20 years since Summit of the Americas in 2001 was our last major equipment acquisition. Like we've made individual pieces for individual officers, right? But mm-hmm. for the most part, that year has stayed pretty static for about the last 20 years. Um, right now, the RCMP is going through a modernization process where we are looking at um, the whole procurement for the entire RCMP nationwide of new gear that is low profile, discrete deployment model is what we're saying, um, so that uh, you might be able to, the troop commander or the public order commander might be able to deploy us and it may not appear that we're in hard tack. So uh, we're looking at more of a discrete deployment model. Not quite so overt in your face. Yeah, I was wondering if there was going to be changes to, you know, the old uh, shield and, and nightstick combo, the helmets with the large visors and stuff like that. So it sounds like they're, it's in the works. And it's, it, we had a meeting uh, with our, our finance people, and it was, it was deemed a high-priority project. Uh, we're working hard at it, and that's one of my major projects. And it's almost ready to go to the next stage. So we're pretty happy with the product that we've come up with. And we're pretty happy with where the whole program is going from an equipment standpoint. So hopefully in the next couple of years, uh, members have new gear and safer gear and not quite so uh, intimidating to the public when we do deploy it. That sounds like it'll be extremely beneficial, like you said, especially when you have these, these call-outs to large crowds and you can, you can kind of mitigate the... Uh the hostile reaction if uh, if they're not a, if they don't see like the full riot gear yeah that's what we're hoping as well and it at the end of the day this is all about giving more options to the decision maker so if he has with the new technology if he's got one or two or three extra tactical options in his toolbox or her toolbox then we're uh, very successful do the rcmp i mean obviously you said right now you're in a you're doing a course that involves Toronto PD, OPP, and things like that. Um, is there is there a lot of different training, um, interagency training that happens with the public orders unit across Canada, or is it provincial, or do you get a chance to go down and work with guys in the U.S.? How does that kind of play out? We got uh, a couple of different in, a couple of different programs in Ontario. We're pretty fortunate that there's a concentration of big. Um, Fantastic agencies in the greater Toronto area, you know, the Peel and the Toronto and the OPP and the Durham and, and York, that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a concentration here. So um, in Ontario, there's an organization that the RCMP is part of called the Ontario Public Order Advisory Committee. And what they're doing is similar to the police agreements from for, that govern lots of different police operations. The advisory committee um, is standardizing how the public order is going to be done in Ontario through the Ontario Police College ahead of legislation. So they're being proactive and working with the police college to make sure that this is all done and standardized before the Ontario enacts legislation for it. So we're going to be ahead of the curve there. So yes, within Ontario now, uh, you can take a, an officer from Thunder Bay, Sudbury, Toronto, and they're all going to go through the same basic training. Uh, all the commanders are going to go through the same commander training. All the NCOs are going to go through the same NCO training. That's going to be mandated 
through the Ontario Police College eventually. Right now, it's just through the OPOAC and mutual agreements between agencies. So that's a that's um, a big win for the province of Ontario. And in tr- talking to Toronto, they have trained guys from Moncton and Halifax and Edmonton and Calgary and Vancouver. So and Winnipeg, actually. Mm. So um, they're coming in from all over the country to see what Toronto does, and they get trained and they go they train their agents. And the RCMP is in, involved with the Ontario Public Order Advisory Committee um, at almost at every level now. So we're heavily embedded with that uh, organization. We provide a lot of uh, input and feedback. The other thing is that we're, the um, U.S. Department of Justice has a research arm called the National Institute of Justice. And they convene a specialized technical committee for uh, civil disturbance. So a whole bunch of SMEs from across the United States, things like Portland Police Bureau, Miami, Houston, New York City Police Department, Los Angeles County Sheriffs, Montgomery County, Fairfax, U.S. Capitol Police. They come together a couple times a year, have in-person meetings. We have web uh, cast meetings, um, but once every two months. But we come together twice a year for in-person meetings, and we are beginning the process of standardizing uh, what is happening in the U.S. for public order and standardizing equipment for the use in public order. So the RCMP has taken on the task of torso and limb protection as making that a standard for public order officers. And eventually the NIJ will take that and use it as their standard. And meanwhile, they're working on helmets. And when they're done, it's going to be an NIJ standard, and we'll take that standard as a Canadian standard. So eventually you'll see lots of uh, standardization uh, across the countries and across the provinces and then eventually across uh, the two countries. Well, that answers my next question, which was going to be um, national standardization. So that's, that's really exciting to hear. Does, and it, I feel like that doesn't happen in a lot of specialty units, does it? It seems like you guys are kind of well ahead of the curve when it comes to a standardization model that would be applicable throughout all of North America? Well, um, like for example, the RCMP, our training's pretty standardized. You could probably take, you know, five guys from Vancouver, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, Halifax, and Quebec, put them all together. And in a day or two of training, they'd be working like they were, they'd be working together like they've been working together for a year and, and weeks and weeks of training. So the RCMP has that standardization across the um, uh, force already. Um, but I'd like to see a Canadian standard. And eventually, I think with the way things are going, you'll, you'll see maybe not quite a whole of North America standard, but I think you'll probably see it being pretty close. Yeah, that'd be super important when it comes to things like the um, the l- most recent incident that comes to mind. So, and I'm sure you probably have better examples of this, but the most recent uh incident that would have come to mind would have been the Toronto Raptors victory parade um, in downtown Toronto, where there was over a million people gathered. There were subsequently two shootings in the crowd and all of this stuff kind of took place where, how would that even, how would you even begin to, to plan for that at your level? Uh, And you don't have a lot of time to plan for it, right? Because you don't know, in the last game, who's going to win, and then it's going to happen two, three, four days later. So um, leading up to 
uh, you know, a couple of weeks before the last game, you'd have to start talking with the other agencies because policing a million people gathered for a parade, uh, no matter what kind of parade it is, Santa Claus to Raptors is uh, very, very difficult. So you have to have mutual aid agreements already in place. You'd have to have, you know, funding already in place. You'd have to have um, officers who are trained and ready to go and are comfortable in crowds. Like, you're in the forces, Adam. You know that special operations personnel cannot be made overnight, right? Yes, very true. Same thing with with, uh, um, special police. They cannot be made overnight. You can't take an officer who is doing patrol work and put him in a crowd and expect to do public order duties as well as an officer who's been doing it for two, three, four years and has gone to 10 training sessions. So you have to have officers trained in advance. You have to have those officers ready. You have to have the equipment ready for them. You have to be able to understand what the mission is. Of That would be more of a crowd management, not a crowd control duty. You have to understand what the mission is and focus on your mission of, hey, my job is to make sure that the people uh, keep moving across the intersection at the corner of walk, don't walk. Those members have to be able to understand that without being dragged down a rabbit hole of something happening over here. So working within a crowd is very, very difficult. And then you have to have contingency plans. Like think about a hostile vehicle event or, like you said, two shootings. Like how do you deal with an active shooter in a crowd of a million people? Yeah, I mean, the from my understanding, the shootings were, were targeted. Um, yeah. So that wasn't a, a mass shooting scenario, uh, but, but you, you don't know you don't know that when the first shots are going. Oh, absolutely. So how does that how would that happen if middle of a crowd? So I I just looked it up here. So they they estimate that between it was between one and two million. So let's say one point five. All right. So one point five million people, and in that square where the where the shootings occurred, there was probably close to two hundred thousand. So if if there's that many people, and we know how crowds work, and they're jammed together like sardines what is the response to that? Cause if, if there's an active shooter, how do officers get in to engage and how does like, how does that play out? Can it even happen effectively? It can. And the nice thing is that the crowd's going to do most of the work for you. Clearing out, be, right. Yeah. Getting, getting away from the shooter. So you, all you got to do is run upstream. If you can make it there, um, you got to work in teams. You got to move towards the sound um, and move towards where the people are coming from. And uh, do your best when that time comes. Do what, take whatever action you have to take when you come to that point. Either deal with the threat or make an arrest or, and then start triage. But the contingency plans are already laid in place. The ambulances are nearby. You know, uh, motorcycle, now paramedics are now in motorcycles and scooters and stuff, right? So they can weave in and out of small places. Like the help is going to be there very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Are there any incidents um, in recent memory for you that kind of stand out as being maybe more difficult than they, they should have been, or, or there were some surprises that took place when you guys actually rolled out and deployed? Yeah. Last December, we had a gathering on Parliament Hill as a protest, counter-protest um, for firearms rights. And, um, you know, we deployed, and very quickly we got called out onto the ground to Parliament Hill. and. Um, it wasn't a big crowd, Adam. Like it was probably a couple hundred people on the firearm side, 
and maybe 60 or 100 people on the uh, anti-gun side, and we don't really don't care what the what the what the stance is for either of these groups. But the groups are when we started moving down towards them, the groups were throwing uh, blocks of ice at each other because it was it was cold. Mm. December in Ottawa is cold. Um, they were throwing blocks of ice at each other, frozen water bottles at each other. They were already fighting over the two barricades that were put up to prevent this. Uh, they were jumping the barricades to get in and, and, and fisticuffs each other. And we were a bit taken aback at how quickly this had moved from zero to a hundred. And as we moved in and we began to separate the crowd, the, the crowd began to fight with us. And I was surprised at the level of resistance that we got from 60 people and how long and tiring it took uh, us to get that crowd under control and move them back. And ultimately, we had to deploy uh, less lethal options, and that essentially ended it when we made the, a couple of targeted arrests. So um, that was the thing that took me uh, aback. And that's not my first time in, you know, I'm, I don't think it was quite a ride, Adam, but in that type of scenario. Um, but the level of resistance from 60 people uh, whose beliefs were so strong um, surprised me. My thought would be if you have a smaller crowd, you're going to have a higher concentration of those more active and more devoted individuals than you would in a crowd that's, that's much, much larger. Is it, maybe it was that. Does that sound right or am I out to lunch? You're absolutely correct. They couldn't muster because it was cold and it was a, you know, not a very nice day weather-wise and that kind of thing. They couldn't muster a crowd of 1,000 people. So the 60 core elements probably went. But the, the re, you're right, the, because the reverse also happens. We see crowds of you know, 10, 15,000 people get hijacked. Uh, like on, Good, honest people who just want to protest, have their voices heard, gather, listen to some speeches, sing, and maybe do a march and leave, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty typical um, protest to people just exercising their everyday rights. And in comes you know, 60, 100, 200 people and they hijack the entire thing and it goes sideways and there's broken windows and fires started and those kind of things like that happened. And the organizers of these groups, organizers of these marches have to be aware that other groups are going to take advantage of them. So you're right on the mark there, Adam. There's the first for everything. So I'll (laughs) take it. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. So what right now, if, if I asked you, what is on the top of your mind with things that are coming up either on a national level for events or things that maybe you're aware of, are there anything, anything coming down the pipe for you that you are kind of, you guys are already spooling up to work with or when do those processes start? For example, maybe I don't even know if we're having another Olympics here for a long time, but obviously with what happened to something like Vancouver, when does that process start? Like that, that planning phase begin for the senior leadership? We have these, uh, there's not much that hasn't happened here, right? Mm-hmm. Like we've had the Olympics, we've had, you know, the North American Leaders Summit, we had uh, presidential visits. We've had all of these things and we have all of these plans. And then we, what we have to do is we have to take them out, dust them off, and we have to do redo the threat assessments and engage with our partners and uh, get funding and those kind of things. 
So, but right now on the on the horizon within Canada, I don't think there's anything uh, anything major that we have on the horizon. We don't have a a summit coming or a leaders uh, a summit coming or anything like that. Um, we don't have the Olympics there. Calgary didn't win it back uh, last year, so um, I don't think we have anything coming on the horizon from uh, a standpoint of a, a huge uh, point of contention gathering. So from a training perspective, then, that means you're obviously going to have some downtime from active deployments. How difficult is it going to be to keep the members at a high level of readiness when you have such a, a long lag time between? I, I mean, set aside and barring the spontaneous events that we spoke about earlier, when we have none of these large events planned, how, how difficult is it to keep the training level up uh, to a high standard? I'm going to lie to you, it's not easy. Um... But you take a look around the world, and uh, what we try to do is to regularly engage the members on the public order teams across Canada by sending out notifications. Like um, I sent out a national notification to all public order teams in Canada uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, Did you see the um, recent tactics in Hong Kong about uh, them firing arrows at the police? Yeah, I definitely saw that on the news, yeah. Okay, so there were some the three different points of footage of um, people with um, not compound bows, but the regular kind of bows, mm-hmm. uh, firing arrows into the air at night. Um, and then there was one with, uh, I think it was a newspaper reporter had an arrow stuck in his leg or calf. Like, uh, we sent that out as a new protester. Not, I wouldn't call those people protesters. I'm going to call them criminals. A new criminal tactic being deployed against the police in Hong Kong. And, you know, when we sit with our members and we talk with our members at, at the training time, we tell them, you have to remain uh, ready and vigilant. Keep your body physically, physically ready. Keep your equipment uh, ready and staged in the proper way that we teach you to. Uh, because their SMP is often the first responders to provincial institutions. For, we're, we're the provincial uh, police jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. We, we get to respond to provincial institutions for uh, civil disturbance or for disturbance within that institution. Um, within federal institutions, we're the federal first responders. Like if correctional service has an extended event or they have an event that they can't handle or um, it gets really violent and they need the police to come and help them, we'll go and render assistance to Correctional Service Canada. So we always have that as well if nothing's going on in the world, right? Mm-hmm. But um, we try to keep our members engaged pretty regularly and keep them interested in what's happening around the world by pointing out, hey, this is a new tactic. So. I may, I'm going to ask a silly, well, maybe a silly question. I'm not sure. But when I think use of force, I yep. think arrows being fired is a lethal use of force. Would the officers on scene respond to that? in the same manner they would an active shooter or does that fall under some type of different category? I, 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 uh, we had talked about this and I don't think you could classify it as an active shooter. I think every arrow fired into the air towards the police in, in those particular circumstances, I believe is an attempted murder charge, or at least we would probably try to lay that it might be ag assault or something along that line or assault with a weapon, but active shooter is easy because you know where the shots are coming from. Uh, and a bow is silent. Like at the best of times, a bow is silent. Um, there would be an investigational follow-up that we would have to 
get that person through investigation. We would probably wouldn't be able to find that person and arrest that person uh, shortly after committing. So, uh, and, you know, shooting into a crowd is, you just don't do that. You'd have to seek that person out, isolate them, and deal with them however they want to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. So that's a good question, Adam, and I don't have a really clear answer for you. Yeah, it's just something that jumped to the top of my head. It's like in a situation where you have an incident, there is a suspect standing with a bow and arrow ready to fire at an officer that's standing across from him. There is a case to be said that you're justified in using lethal force to stop the offender before he fires the arrow at the officer. Now, imagine yeah. in a cra- I'm imagining in a crowd scenario, for example, we have here in Winnipeg, uh, when the Jets make the playoffs, we have the whiteout parties. So we shut down part of downtown, the city police, there's barricades up, the ER team is deployed, there's helicopters, we have a sniper team or two out there. If there was something like that, an incident where somebody had a bow and arrow um, firing into a crowd and maybe there was a, uh, a sniper, a sharpshooter available, would that constitute them being able to fire on that person? Or is that a is decision made by incident command at the time? How would that play out is, is kind of what went through my head. I don't expect an answer from you if, you. if you have one, great. But if not, that was just kind of what was bouncing through my head right now. Yeah, we have this debate regularly with respect to um, the use of firearms in a crowd situation. And the situation that you're talking about where the person is embedded within the crowd with a bow and arrow firing arrows at the police, you know, it's in a crowd of 10,000 people or 5,000 people or 100 people. To, to take that shot, you're taking a lot of risk. It's a hell of a shot. Like you, you have one person uh, committing attempted murder, but there's 100 people just standing around just throwing rocks at the police. How do you, how do you ensure that you've only, you're only shooting that one guy? Mm-hmm. That might be a case where we have to you know, send in our arrest team, you know, six, eight, ten members to push through that crowd and under the guidance of a uh, sniper or a long, precision long arm, take that person into custody if we can. So, uh, but that's a, that's a big risk for our members to leave the line and go, go and do that, right? So it, you'd have to, that's some hard decisions you'd have to make as a, as a NCO and a commander, public order commander. And that yeah. might even turn into a full-on tactical situation where the public order team withdraws and tactical goes in and deals with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it, I mean, that would be a shitty situation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't want to be the uh, OIC in that, uh, in that event, but it's, um, I mean, but these are the things that you guys deal with, right? It's in, and I'm assuming the hypotheticals that get thrown out in some of your training sessions are, are crazy where it's, well, what, do we, it's like a it's a lose 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 situation in some parts. Yeah, you're right. And you know what? Maybe that's a scenario we should be training at our next training cycle in the spring. Well, there you go. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll uh, I'll expect my check in the mail. Consultation fee. All right, it's on, it's on its way. Excellent, excellent. Um, no, that's awesome. I just um those hypotheticals are the, I guess the, in training, you know, this is, this podcast was started as, as a way for instructors to talk. And when we talk about the, the hypothetical is always that, that one thing we always talk about in training. Well, what if it's always the, what if, what if this, then this, then that, and public order brings a whole new 
spin puts a whole new spin on it. Cause when you're talking use of force, you're saying, well, yeah, well he's firing at me. So I'm going to, you know, return fire. And it's, well, now you have a whole nother realm of considerations that you have to, you have to put into play here and it changes, uh, changes your response. Yeah. You know, thinking about a person with a bow and arrow in the crowd, maybe now you'd be justified in uh, deploying large amounts of tear gas because it's a, it's a visual barrier. Plus it's a um, human reactive, right? Like normally you try not to tear gas the crowd because, you're tear gassing innocent people. Yeah. People who are not, you know, uh, not lawful to subject them to that level of force. But maybe now we should because we need to make that arrest or stop that behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, Less lethal. You know, it's, uh, it can be lethal, but it's less lethal. But the odds of it, you know, like, I don't know. There's a lot of questions there. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting one too. Cause when you talk about CS, it's, it's kind of like, okay, well, It'll the chances of it incapacitating the person are good, but at the same time, now you're talking about like you said, there's a potential that somebody in the crowd has a respiratory disease, something that's going to cause a a fatal reaction to them. Now, on your justification side, you're like, well, the the offender could have shot the arrow into the crowd of civilians, so we're doing it to protect them. But again, at the same time, in the effort to protect them, somebody ended up passing away due to something unforeseeable. So it, it raises a, a whole bunch of, it, it almost raises more questions than answers. And um, we had a, um, a speaker in on Monday and he told us about a scenario that he was working with a protest, counter protest scenario, police in the middle. The police were not the subject of the violence, but the two groups, uh, one group was throwing Molotov cocktails, uh, gasoline filled, uh, glass jars at the other group, like they had to, police had to intervene very quickly on this person, people, there's multiple people with Molotov cocktails because they weren't throwing them at the police, they were throwing them at the unprotected people. Yeah, you're playing monkey in the middle. Yeah, um, like holy moly. That would be, yeah, it's, it's the amount of scenarios now, now my, now the gears are spinning. So I'm just throwing my head's just rattling off scenarios. <laughs> We're not, I don't want to, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole too much. I think we've, uh, we've, we've explained that there's, there's more than, more than enough different things that can happen on any given day. So. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like we said, uh, train, 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 and you can't build specialists uh, overnight. So on that note, what, advice would you give to uh, traders, to FTOs, to kind of leadership units, whether they be uh, at RCMP detachments, uh, divisional level, uh, or municipal uh, police forces, where where can they go and and what resources do they have at a unit level, um, either locally, provincially, or nationally, um, if they want to get more information on the um, public order policing stuff where where do they go to that do they come to the rcmp um or are there are training facilities around the um the individual agencies uh everyone every all police agencies in canada have access to the rcmp national public order program we'll share with them uh whatever we can our training our policies our everything uh, we're here to assist public order in canada 
focused on the RCMP, but uh, we'll, you know, assist any police agency that reaches out for help. So if you're an officer in an agency that's looking for some assistance with respect to the public order training or your public order team or, or how to access uh, seized funds, uh, we can help you with that. Um, if you want more information on the RCMP public order program, uh, you can go to the uh, RCMP website at www.rcmp.gc.ca. And there's information there about careers because, hey, the RCMP is hiring, Adam, did you know? <laughs> I, you know what? I did know that. That's exciting news. It is exciting news. I think uh, the big numbers are 1,000 uh, recruits this year. Oh, wow, so, really? I didn't know yeah. it was that high. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. We're, we're hiring lots. Um, you can get ideas on Canadian Fire and Program, our uh, Wanted by the RCMP, um, how to get a criminal record check, that kind of thing, from, all from this website. So um, go there if you have any more information about the RCMP, want more information about the RCMP and uh, the public order program. That's awesome. And for our American friends and uh, those around the world, is there a way if they are a law enforcement agency or law enforcement officer, is there a way for them to access the RCMP public order training or is that something that's still closed off and we keep in-house? Nope. Uh, we'd be willing to uh, assist uh, any agency, but um, between the two countries, you have to go through, uh, we're the lead agency in Canada and in the United States, um, the Federal Bureau of Investigation is a lead agency for law enforcement in the States with respect to uh, contacting agencies uh, over agencies in other countries. So, you know, let's say, uh, you know, the Alabama State Patrol uh, want to have access to the RCMP training for public order. Um, through their local FBI rep, they would contact uh, liaison officers in Washington who would be able to contact me through uh, Interpol and we can get them whatever they, we need. They're a friendly nation. Uh, we'd be willing to help them. Okay, that's awesome. Awesome news. Um, I'm glad that we're able to share that with, with everybody and, and I'm assuming it goes both ways. So that's, that's a fantastic program that you guys have set up. Yeah. One, one of the things that I was excited to talk to you about too, as we're kind of wrapping up here is recently I came up with an idea to do an instructor's round table. And what that's yeah. going to be is essentially once a month or once every while, whenever we can get a few guys to sit down together, guys on your level, I'm going to just moderate as the host. Um, I don't claim to be an expert in any, uh, anything law enforcement, but sit down five or six uh, instructors, trainers, senior members, and talk about topics that are relevant to current events or things that other officers are bringing up kind of in forums and things like that. Is that something that you'd be interested in jumping in on with us? Absolutely. And I can think of one thing off the top of my head that uh, should be tackled first, Adam. Okay, let's do it. Tactics. First episode, what is it going to be? Defensive tactics. Oh, um, okay. Members uh, do you know, a fair amount of training with their, they, don't, they might get it a couple times a year with respect to firearms and that kind of thing. But the base skill of uh, takedowns, arrests, handcuffing, searching, um, defending yourself uh, against a, an unarmed attacker who attacks you, uh, defensive tactics. So I think that everybody should have some martial arts, but that, hey, that's just me, right? I think you're absolutely right. I think that's something that's, again, coming to the forefront with what's going on in the world, especially in, in regards to policing and media and social media. 
Um, and actually, you know what, that, that brings up something that I, I did want to ask you about when it comes to officer response, because there has been changes and now everybody has a cell phone, everybody has yeah. a camera. How has that changed the way that the public order policing is conducted? Has it changed it at all? Or is it, is it kind of stayed the same? Um, I think it's kind of stayed the same because uh, we've been doing the same kind of training for the last 20 years before the, you know, the big movement towards everything having a camera. Um, we've seen officer misconduct in front of cameras when they know they're being recorded. And we've seen officer conduct in front of cameras when the cameras are hidden. Um, people are people. They get frustrated. They get tired. They're hungry. And uh, they've had enough. And, you know, something bad happens. And they take inappropriate action. That's just going to happen. That's just the nature of being human and being police work and being under stress. So yeah. um, I welcome uh, body cameras and uh, I was a traffic officer for many years in Burnaby and I loved my in-car camera. That was uh, the stage. That uh, was the, the front of my police car was my uh, um, movie studio. That's where I did all my investigations. That's where I did my interviews. I had audio visual, uh, I had lighting. Uh, all I needed was makeup, Adam, and everything was complete, right? <laughs> but um, the video camera is great uh, because it also exonerates officers when things go sideways and there's public complaints made. That's exactly right. When I, the, every time I talk to anybody, and, and more so, I deal more on the private security consulting side now. Um, but anytime I'm even talking to security officers, people in loss prevention or anything like that, um, everybody kind of gets their panties in a twist when somebody pulls out a cell phone and I say, Hey man, that, that works to your advantage. If, if you conduct yourself the way you should be conducting yourself, if you're doing your job correctly, that's going to do nothing but give you proof that you did everything correctly when you go to court. And they're like, Oh, yeah. well, I never thought of that. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. The only caveat that I would put on that is that when you police deal with a lot of personal information. And I uh, had an experience. I was doing a traffic stop, and the person I uh, got in behind the guy activated the lights, uh, pulled the guy over, and he pulled into a um, Esso gas station. Not my favorite place to stop cars because now we're impeding on the Esso gas station, right? But mm -hmm. I often, oftentimes, don't make the decision to where to pull over a car, right? Buddy stopped where he stopped, and they dealt with it. So. Um, I go up to the police, go up to the, leave the police vehicle, go up to the vehicle and I start talking to the guy and, um, uh, gentleman walks up to me and he's got his phone out and he says, I'm recording this in case something happens. And, uh, we're on public property. Well, it's, it's private property, but the public has access to it. And I said, uh, sure. Um, the guy goes, yeah, record this because I don't know what's going to happen. And I said, well, just so you know, sir, I'm going to ask you for your name, your address, your phone number. Uh, and your, pardon me, your, your name, your address, your date of birth, and I'm going to compare the picture on your driver's license with your picture. And, um, sir, he's recording your full name, your address, and your date of birth. And I don't have any control over what he's going to do with that information. And the driver went, oh, uh, okay, yeah, I don't want you to record this. I'm like, you can, you can record, from, you can record the interaction with my, myself and this person over there. But my feeling is that this gentleman does not want to be recorded and have you overhear our conversation. 
because it's gonna, he's going to give me personal information. And the guy's like, oh, you can't do that. And I said, actually, now I can because I, you don't have permission from him to film him. So if you don't, I'm going to arrest you for obstruction because now I can't do my job. Mm-hmm. So the guy did back across the parking lot and, you know, in a minute or two, he put the phone away and walked away, right? Mm-hmm. So we have to be aware of, it's not just our duty to protect the public, but it's also my duty to protect the personal information of the people that I deal with. Yeah, you peed in that guy's porridge. He wasn't very happy with you. <laughs> I guess so, so to speak. <laughs> but you know what? The, the driver was actually very thankful to me. He says, well, I, I never thought of that. I'm sorry. I said, Dan, sir, I'm audio and video recording this from my police vehicle, and it doesn't get released to the public. This stays within the police world. He's like, oh, okay, well, thank you, officer. So he was pretty happy about what I did because I thought ahead to the next steps because he could post this to YouTube. And now I know it's Bob Johnson born September 3rd, 1971. Yeah. And, and now, now Bob doesn't have any uh, savings left because somebody got into his bank account. Exactly. You know, and if there's a Bob Johnson out there born September 1971, I apologize. But... <laughs> Bob, you could reach out to, uh, reach out to <laughs> us at support at the breakdown.ca and uh, we'll make sure we get in touch with the right representatives for you. Thanks, Bob. Yeah. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> All right, Darwin, I can't thank you enough for joining me on this podcast. I'm really excited that we finally got a chance to sit down and talk. Is there anything that you want to leave the listeners with? Anything that you're on the top of your mind right now? Yeah, uh, two things. First of all, the RCMP is hiring. We need good people uh, of all shapes and sizes and everything. Uh, Make an application to the RCMP. It really is a great job. Uh, The the culture within the RCMP is changing, and uh, it's a good job, good pay, good benefits, and it's really rewarding at the end of the day. Uh, Second thing is, uh, Canadians, Americans, anybody listening to this, I support your right to protest. I support your right to gather and speak. The people gathering to speak to uh, power within our country, uh, that is the voice of our democracy. And it's the job of the police, particularly public order officers, to facilitate peaceful protest. That's our job. And if I never get called out again and have to use my hard uh, equipment again, um, it would be too soon. Uh, That would be my dream, is to watch peaceful protest be facilitated by police uh, for the rest of my career. So um, Canadians, when you want to gather and speak, do so, but do it peacefully and lawfully. Thanks for having me on, Adam. I really appreciate it. I listened to a number of the, the podcasts, and they're great. And thank you for all the work you're doing to educate Canadians and to assist law enforcement, and in particular those with PTSD, because uh, it's a scourge on our profession and the profession of first response, whether it's fire, ambulance, or police. Yeah, thank um, you, my friend. I really appreciate that. And yeah. uh, we'll have, I'll, uh, I'll cue you up and uh, you're on the list for uh, the very first uh, instructor's roundtable that we have in 2020. So I'll keep you uh, okay. informed with Sounds that and, and we'll go from there. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Uh, All right, man. Have a good night, sir. You too. Talk to you soon. All right. All right, again, I want to thank Darwin for being on the show. If you have any questions or you want to reach out to Darwin, visit the show notes page at thebreakdown.ca forward slash 018. There you'll find links to both Darwin and the RCMP website at rcmp.gc.ca. 
We are really excited about what's coming up in 2020, including our Instructors Roundtable series that is going to be taking place every month. Make sure to stay tuned for that. And the best way to do that is to subscribe to the podcast so that you can get the most up-to-date information as it comes out real time. Again, thank you for being here. I will see you next time on the Tactical Breakdown. Stay safe.